Let's open our Bibles once again to the book of Colossians as we continue our series through this incredible epistle of Paul the Apostle. Colossians chapter 3. Picking it up at verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. I'm trusting that because you have been reading this that you recall how the Apostle Paul grounds all of the imperatives in the indicative of who we are in Christ in the first four verses of chapter 3. But we're going to pick it up reading at verse 18. Let's pray before reading. Gracious God and Father, we are grateful that we are here worshiping your name. We are doing that for which we have been created. And if there is rebellion in anyone's heart, just doesn't want to be doing this thing, singing your praises and acknowledging your worth, then Father, help that heart to see that it's in darkness and needs grace, needs Christ. And we pray that you will work in that saving way even this morning. Just as we heard this morning, you worked long ago in a missions conference. Anytime God's word is preached, your word will accomplish the purpose to which you send it, and it will not return unto you void. And so we ask for that even now. And we pray that your people will be upbuilt in the faith as we come to this passage in which there's nothing difficult to understand, but we are called to apply it and to live it. Give us grace so to do. And so, Father, for your people gathered here and for lost ones who may be among us today, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work that work which only he can. And we ask and pray these things humbly in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." A dear friend of mine told me recently that his ministry had been for years hindered by listening to the taped sermons of a very well-known preacher. The sermons were sound, that is to say they contained no heresy, but my pastor friend over time came to two startling conclusions. First of all, the man to whom he was listening, even though he was very evangelistic and cared about the lost coming to know Christ, There was no gospel for the Christian in his preaching. Everything was law. Everything was command. Everything was imperative. And then secondly, he also noted 
that there was no tenderness or affection or love shown in his preaching toward his congregation. My friend has ceased listening to this minister's sermons and has become more biblical and balanced in his own preaching and ministry to his flock. But my reason for bringing that little story to you this morning is simply to say this. Paul does not hesitate to give imperatives and commands and directions for Christian living, and he will plead and sometimes he will even scold. But the important point to note is that when Paul does these things, he always, without exception, does so in the context of the gospel given to Christians. Paul knew that the same gospel by which we initially come to faith in Christ is the same gospel by which we grow in the Christian life. And so in the passage that preceded this one, and taking into consideration today the Christian social obligations, Paul gives these directives only after having bathed the congregation in these wonderful truths about who Christ is and what He has done and what the gospel is all about, the gospel of grace. So what we have here with the Christian social obligations are implications of the gospel in our lives. The gospel is not duty, the gospel is grace. But those who know grace are called to plain duties. A.T. Robertson says, Our dealings with others is the final proof of our real connection with Christ. And it is particularly important to note the emphasis of Paul in the New Testament, in this passage in particular, on the family. McLaren said, in the family, Christianity has most significantly displayed its power of refining, ennobling, and sanctifying earthly relationships. Indeed, one may say that domestic life, as seen in thousands of Christian homes, is purely a Christian creation, and would have been a new revelation to the heathenism of Colossae, as it is today in many a mission field." Well said, and very important indeed, a faithful Christian home may be among our most powerful witnesses to the world around us in a culture that doesn't understand God, doesn't understand man, doesn't understand our need, doesn't understand what marriage is all about, or how to rear children. So let me remind us that in the prior passage, Paul has taught us that the image of God lost and ruined in the fall is now being restored by the gospel, and that image shows itself not only in our relationships one to another, but also in our social obligations. So it will not allow us to dichotomize. It will not allow us to say, well, that's the gospel, and that's church, and that's worship. This is business, and this is the family, and we're going to separate these things out. That would be a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of life. And so Paul addresses here six classifications of people in three pairs, and I'm going to look at all six with you this morning, and the pairs will be easy for you to discern. So he begins with the Christian family. And the first thing to note is this, gospel implications for wives. Gospel implications for wives. And so he says in verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's very quick, very simple, nothing difficult to understand. Now is this simply cultural? There are some things in this text that are cultural. Slavery, for example, in its ancient form was cultural. But marriage and the family are ordained of God. These are creation ordinances, and marriage is taken up into the covenant of grace by the gospel. 
And so wives are called to continue in subjection to their husbands, not for cultural reasons, but for redemptive reasons. Paul does not say be in subjection to all men. He doesn't say that. He says, wives, be in subjection to your own husbands in the Lord. Now, note the sacred underpinnings of that by turning back to Ephesians 5. We not long ago preached this passage, and you remember that Ephesians and Colossians are sometimes called twin epistles. And it's important that we remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 22 and following. I'll read the whole thing without much comment. Ephesians 5, 22 and following. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this points to union with Christ. It has nothing to do with any falsely supposed superiority. It is simply the way the Lord in His wisdom has ordained the relationship between husband and wife. Subjection is in the Lord. It is all about union with Christ. And so if you are a wife in the Lord, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then it should be your delight to obey your Savior by submission to your husband. Now Paul is assuming here a believing marriage. I can't say everything that can be said about all kinds of marriages out there when I preach a text like this, and you know that. But Paul is assuming a believing marriage here, and the parallel with Ephesians indicates that the husband, though he makes mistakes, nonetheless loves his wife, loves the Lord, and he wants his wife to be all that she can be in Christ in the context of the gospel, and in that context she also is submissive. Husbands and wives do not have the same calling and do not have the same obligations in the home. And when the man leads and the woman follows, it is a beautiful thing. My friend Nancy Chastain has used an illustration that I have brought into the pulpit before. And it is simply this, that when you see a man and a woman on a dance floor, it can be a beautiful thing. The man leads, the woman follows. It's a beautiful thing. There's order, there's beauty, there's symmetry. But if both are trying to lead at the same time, then you step all over one another's feet, and it's really a royal mess. Christ wants our homes to be ordered, and ordered after the pattern of His redemptive love for His church, and this is the way He's ordained it. This is what God says. But that leads us secondly to this, the gospel implications for the husband. In verse 19 of chapter 3, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Could be translated this way, you husbands keep on loving your wives and stop being bitter toward them. So there are two commands. The first command to us husbands is that we keep on loving our wives 
and also that we stop being bitter toward them. So if you're a husband, perhaps before marriage you had great affection for this woman, and perhaps in early marriage you had a lot of affection, but now you have a cold attitude, this is particularly pertinent for you. And a warning, I think, to all husbands who are here. Remember, these are gospel implications, and with Ephesians also in mind, how is it consistent with the sacrificial love of Christ for His church who died upon the cross if we do not continue to love our wives and if we are bitter toward them? Did Christ grow cold to us after redeeming us? And is not love an attitude of self-sacrifice? Isn't it unselfishing ourselves? And so if you were a husband here and you were harsh or you show your temper at regular intervals, it's sinful and it's also stupid. A word I rarely use, but it really is. How do you expect to show Christ this way? How do you expect to have an ordered home this way? How do you expect your wife will want to submit to your leadership this way? Again, my friend A.T. Robertson says, it is useless to call your wife honey if you act like vinegar towards her. Harshness and cruelty of the husband cause tragedy in the home as restraint and tenderness make love grow dear with the years. By the way, in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 8, the 8th chapter of Revelation um, in um, verse 11, This word is used again. Um, The name of the star, this is where you have the seven trumpets. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And that's the same word that Paul uses here when he says don't bitter, be bitter toward your wife. So some husbands I hope here won't be taking the nickname Wormwood because you're bitter toward your wives. Husband and wife What are you doing to strengthen your marriage, to prepare to speak well of each other, to handle conflict in an edifying way? What are you doing to address the heart issues that underlie the discord? How are you addressing your heart with the gospel? Well, let's move on. Thirdly, gospel implications for children. For children. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Or it could again be translated, you children keep on obeying your parents in all things for this is well-pleasing in the Lord because it's a progressive present. So children, this is not done one time, it's the direction of your young lives. The Lord also speaks to you children. And once again, it is in the Lord. He addresses you as recipients of the Savior. You are to obey your parents because of the gospel. And he says in all things. Now, again, I I can't address every possible situation, but Paul is not addressing children whose parents attempt to keep them from Christ. There are those kinds of parents, but he's addressing the Christian home. And now, children, you can obey on the outside, and you can fume on the inside, but the point is here to have a Christian heart, to submit to the Lord by submitting to your parents, obeying the Lord because they represent God's authority in your lives. And young people, as you grow, you should be given more and more responsibility, opportunity to make your own decisions and your own mistakes. That's the only way you'll learn. That's the only way that you'll learn how to be independent. And so your parents will make mistakes here, and so will you. 
But trust God and His providence to protect you in ways that you cannot see by the wisdom and mistakes made by your parents and recognize that it's really hard for your parents to learn this balance and hard for your parents to know exactly when to let the rain out a bit. But I want to say this to the children because I think it is a powerful motive in the context of the gospel. Do not walk away from the Lord and break your devout parents' hearts. You have no idea how much your parents love you. You will not know until you have your own children. Maybe. Then. So when your mom says you shouldn't drive yet, or your dad says to, the, to you, daughter, you're not going out of the house wearing that, are you going to fume, or are you going to obey from the heart? Maybe your parents warn you about a relationship. Maybe they say you're not watching that movie. You see, it's all a test of whether you hear the voice of your Heavenly Father training you for the future when you are independent and your parents won't be there and you'll be obeying the Lord simply with His Word in your hand, hopefully in the body of Christ. Now there are a number of passages to which I would take you, young people, this morning. I'll mention them for you note-takers. Romans 1.30, 2 Timothy 3.2, and the discipline passage of Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. But I am going to read um, 2 Timothy. If I said first, I meant second. 2 Timothy 3, 2. In which the apostle says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Then he describes what people are going to be like in the last days. And he says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. You see that? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the power of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. So he says in the last days, yes, even in the church... In the midst of all of these other things that he describes, he says there are going to be children who disobey their parents. Let it not be you. But may the gospel so grip your heart that you will walk faithfully. But we move on, and fourthly, there are gospel implications for fathers. Remember, he's preached the gospel. He's saying these are duties that flow out of understanding Christ. So gospel implications for fathers, verse 21, Colossians 3.21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Or don't irritate your children would be another way of translating it. Fathers are called to stop irritating your children so that your children will not lose heart. Now what's the use? I can't please him. I can't do anything right. By the way, when Paul says that fathers should not irritate their children, that doesn't mean that mothers may. Paul is simply once again recognizing that father is the head of the home. And so the Bible teaches neither permissiveness nor an overly strict approach that keeps children sullen and provokes their hearts to disobedience. For which they are responsible, but we are too. So the whole point here really is we need to learn how to win our children by love, don't we? Love will avoid being too strict, too many regulations. Love will also say no when it's right to say no and to mean it. It's a terrible mistake to say no 
over and over again teaching our children that there are no consequences for disobedience. That's not love. Now, this is true of sons and it's true of daughters. Sons, for example, in our day especially, need to be taught to be Christian gentlemen and how to respect girls and women. I actually held the door for a lady recently in a store and she thanked me for it. Sometimes they act as if, well, let's go on. (laughs) But let me say, I've been noticing for many years how much daughters need fathers or father figures in some instances. How How will a young lady learn how to relate to a husband one of these days if she's not relating to you? How will she know what kind of man she should marry or how to have a friendship with a man if she doesn't learn it through you? So, Father, I ask, do you know what makes your daughter tick? Do you know what her favorite color is? Do you know what music she likes and why? Do you know what her temptations are? Do you know what her inner longings are? Do you take her out, spend time with her? So if we simply say, do this, do that, that's bound to be exasperating for a son or a daughter. Now there's a time to say, do this or do that, but a context of love oils the wheels for the command. So does your child know how much the Bible means to you? Does your child know know how much the Son of God means to you? How much their mother means to you? By the way, sassing mother is something a father should never tolerate. Ever. And a very good comment to make to your children is, and I don't care if you point the finger, she was my wife before you were my child. So you never tolerate that. Now, on this word provoke or irritate, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson points out the verb appears in 2 Corinthians 9 2 in a good sense. But here it is, the irritation as the result of nervous explosion on the part of the father. It is terrible when a father is no longer a hero to the child. The result of this bad habit is that the child's heart is broken. The child loses heart and becomes spiritless. So men, you ought to be living through the gospel through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, such lives that your children can look at you and say, he's my hero with all of his faults. So do you love the Lord? Let it show in the way you love your child. So that your child can say, my dad really loves the Lord. And I know that he loves the Lord because he he shows it in the way he loves me. Do you form such an atmosphere that your child knows that he or she may come and talk with you about anything, and I do mean anything? How many problems would be resolved if our children were brought up with that kind of openness so that your son or daughter can come to you and say, I have a temptation and it won't shock my father, and he'll help me with it because he loves me. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what we're after in the home. So... For those of you who are in my Doctrine of God class on Sunday morning before the worship service, teach your children how to be theologians. And some of you will remember the Puritan definition of theology. Theology is the art of living well. And the way in which they will learn to live well is by living in an atmosphere that is gospel-saturated where they see you believing, confessing, 
living out the gospel. Fifthly, there are gospel implications for slaves. Let's read verses 22 to 25 again. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, here we must remember that slavery was very common in the ancient world. And by the way, Paul gives this much attention here because Ephesians and Colossians will be attended with the epistle of Philemon, which is all about a runaway slave. In the ancient world, slavery was not about race. It was an economic institution and largely the evil fruit of the Roman conquests. It was pervasive. It was a fact of everyday life. The gospel would influence society like leaven and eventually do away with the institution, but it would take a long time for the leaven to work its way through society. And many slaves were sculptors and painters and teachers, and some held governmental posts. But nonetheless, no matter their gifts, no matter how they were employed, slaves were viewed as a commodity. A high view of human respect comes from the Christian faith. And that's why as Christianity wanes, our culture shows less human respect. Now in 1 Timothy 6.1, the Apostle Paul, I think, helps us to understand what he's after here when he talks about the obedience that the slaves are to show to their masters. In 1 Timothy 6.1, Paul says... Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So Paul is concerned that the name of God and the teaching of the gospel not be reviled. Now Colossae is on a trade route that starts on the western side of Asia Minor at Ephesus, and that works its way all the way through Asia Minor to the Euphrates River. And that trade route would have also been a slave trade route, and there would have been slave trade, and there would have been slaves all through Asia Minor and the places that read Paul's epistles. But Paul's point is, we, we as Christians no longer see people simply horizontally. That's not how we live. We have a greater issue here, and that is the gospel. And so the principle still stands. Paul's evangelistic heart is saying, don't do anything that hinders people from hearing the gospel. And we apply this to work today, don't we? We are not, thank God, in a situation in which there is overt slavery, but we are, most of us, either employees or employers. And the principle again stands. There's something that is more important than I am in the workplace, and that is the gospel and how people see Jesus through me. Paul encourages the ennobling character of work everywhere. In verse 17 of chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That includes the work that we do. So work as a Christian witness. 
and by your work and attitude lift high the cross. And Paul then, and the word generally now addresses the evangelistic and the apologetic value of your life and your work, which is more important than your comfort. Your citizenship is in heaven, and so here do all you can to live so that the name and teaching are not reviled. And hence he says you're not to be working as eye, with eye service. In other words, only when you're watched, God sees. Not just as men pleasers, but he says in singleness of heart, fearing the Lord, that's how we must work. And that's living eschatologically, really believing that the Lord will reward when he returns, even when the earthly employer will not. And the one who does wrong will receive back the wrong that he did because God is no respecter of persons. And some days you leave until the day of judgment. I've told you this story before, but I just will never forget it. Sinclair Ferguson told me that when he was living in Scotland, he had some business to deal with some someplace, and he went, and the, 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 um, the manager there was not a Christian, but Sinclair had to go to the place several times, and every time he would go, he would notice that there was this one young lady that was always working. She was cheerful. She was always typing or doing whatever her job was. So one day he said to this manager, he says, you know, I... I can't help but notice this young lady over here. Every time I come here, she stands out. She's cheerful, and she's working, and she's typing, and she's... Now remember, this manager was not a Christian. But he said to Sinclair, oh, she's a Christian. Just like that. In other words, it's expected, isn't it? She's a Christian. Do you think that would happen today? Do you think that we Christians are so working in our workplaces with such joy and going through the hardship and the gruel and all the rest with an attitude that at least wants to glorify God and shows that we actually love the people around us, that someone coming in would say, I'm noticing that person, what, 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 what gives? And they'd say, oh, well, he's a Christian, she's a Christian. Well, that's Paul's point, really. Sixth thing we learn here, there are gospel implications for masters, chapter 4, verse 1. This is an example, by the way, of how when the divisions were added to the Bible, it wasn't added well because they make a new chapter of something that should be in the previous chapter. But in chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So again, we translate that today into an employer who has employees, and that's several of you here. Christian men, he says, be just and fair. Christian women, be just and fair. Both slave and master must live in light of the gospel and in light of the judgment. And even here, Paul stresses the dignity that eventually will do away with slavery. J.B. Lightfoot made this beautiful comment. The philosophers of Greece taught and the laws of Rome assumed that the slave was a chattel, but a chattel could have no rights. It would be absurd to talk of treating a chattel with justice. So you see, the very way in which Paul says you are to treat the slave militates against the whole idea of slavery eventually. But there's no partiality with God, he says. Evil on both sides are condemned. And as we apply this to employers, notice that it's not mercy that he speaks of. He doesn't say a thing here about mercy. Now, mercy is important, and we should show mercy 
He doesn't say anything about mercy. He says you're to treat them fairly. He's talking about justice. Justice. I want to make that point because I'm hearing a lot of people nowadays confuse justice and mercy, and they are distinguishable. So he's talking about, if I can bring it into our day, our setting, he's talking about offering a just wage for the work that is required. He's talking about not destroying the man by unjust criticism. Not destroying the man or his family by requiring hours of them, the kinds of hours that will just destroy a family. Treat the person in your employment with justice, knowing that you also have a Lord in heaven, he says. You and I stand before God for how we treat our fellow men and especially those that depend upon us in various ways. So those are the six categories. Let's bring it to a conclusion with a few observations. First, again, the gospel relates to every relationship and to all of our social obligations. It is not a narrowly defined application only to Sunday or to religious observances. The gospel applies to everything. Now I want you to notice something. Go down with your eye as I mention these verses. In verse 18, verse 20, verse 22, are you there? Colossians 3. In verse 18, in verse 20, in verse 22, in verse 23, in verse 24, in chapter 4, verse 1, he uses the word the Lord, or in one case, the Master. Do you see the point? I mean, just look at it. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. In uh, verse uh, 22, fearing the Lord. In verse 23, as for the Lord and not for men. Uh, verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1, a master, a Lord in heaven. That's important, wouldn't you say? Yes? What's he saying? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. In all of your relationships, in all of your social obligations, the point is the Lord. The point is the Lordship of Christ over all things. And that means the nitty-gritty and details of life. Now, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. I think these verses are very applicable to what Paul has told us here. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Peter says this by divine inspiration. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, that, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which means when Jesus comes. So what Peter is saying, what Paul is saying, is that we are so to live life in our homes, in the workplace, wherever it may be, 
So the world looking in, they will not see perfect people, but they'll see that you are Christian people, that they will see that there's something different. That's our calling. The epistle of Diognetus was possibly written as early as 130 A.D. That's, that's early. And I want you to hear what is said about Christians in this epistle of Diognetus. It says this, Christians are not distinguishable from the rest of mankind in land or speech or customs. They inhabit not special cities of their own, nor do they use any different form of speech, nor do they cultivate any out-of-the-way out life. But while they live in Greek and barbarian cities as their lot may be cast and follow local customs and dress and food and life generally, yet they live in their own countries as sojourners only. In other words, we're strangers in this world. They take part in everything as citizens and submit to everything as strangers. Every strange land is native to them and every native land is strange. They marry and have children like everyone else, but they do not expose their children. That means they don't leave their children out to die when they're unwanted, which was common in the Roman Empire. Christians didn't do that. They have meals in common, but they do not have wives in common. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They continue on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the laws ordained, and by their private lives they overcome the laws. In a word, what the soul is in the body, that is what Christians are in the world. That is a high calling. Would you not agree? The early Christians impressed the world by the lives they lived, their family life, their love for each other, their moral purity, and living for the world to come. And surely what we take from the passage this morning is at least this. You and I are called to live lives in our homes and workplaces in such a way that Jesus Christ is praised. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.